0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The majority of us won't be changing our primary email address anytime soon, or our phone number, for example. Um, so it just comes down to adding more layers of protection around those accounts.
1: Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to the Hacking Humans podcast brought to you by the Cyberwire. This is the show where every week we delve into the world of social engineering scams, phishing plots, and criminal activities that are grabbing headlines and causing harm to organizations all over the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, we're joined by Alif Dennis from Bishop Fox, and we're going to talk about the 23andMe breach. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. Time travel would be a particularly powerful tool in the hands of any overworked InfoSec professional. Think about it. Being able to see the future and know which malicious emails would be missed by all the existing filters. Your ability to stay one step ahead of the bad actors would rise to a whole new level. Unfortunately, our sponsors haven't cracked time travel just yet. They are, however, introducing a new phishing protection product that can block and remove dangerous phishing emails before your users even see them. Stay with us, and in a few minutes, you'll learn how. Joe, before we dig into our stories here, we have quite a bit of follow-up yes. uh, this week. Kind of clearing out the follow-up folder. But <laughs> <laughs> so what do, what, do you want,
2: what do we got here? Well, the first one is from, uh, from Michael, who wrote in about our catch of the day last week, which mm. was the or last episode, because this episode drops after the holidays. Dave.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, but it was a voicemail purporting to be from Spectrum. Right. And uh, Michael writes in, Hi, Dave and Joe. Some more information on this scam. I live in southwestern Connecticut and Spectrum does not service my direct area, but does service an adjacent locale. I receive quite a lot of phone calls about, quote, if I'm tired of high bills, speak to them about dropping down my bills, end quote, from a group professing to be Spectrum. Uh, This is despite the fact that a quick phone number search on the Spectrum site shows that Spectrum does not. Service my address, as well as the search on the site displays the uh, the fact that my local number is listed as a Comcast number. Uh, they refer each other for service in the area when uh, when there's no service apparently. So in other words, he's saying that uh, if he were to put his number in, they'd say nope, you're going to have to call Comcast. Mm-hmm. So uh, he goes on to say they may be calling all numbers in an area serviced by smaller ISP holders rather than targeting actual customers. Just like normal spam calls, it would result in a high number of false starts given that they won't reach actual Spectrum customers or people capable of signing up for Spectrum. Uh, Similar to this in my area is a lack of specificity as well. Uh, At times, they will only say that they are with your, quote, TV services. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Hey, I'm from your TV provider. Right. Yeah, who is that? Hey, we're from the government. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. I, I've gotten these calls before where it's, hey, this is this is Bob from your phone company. Yeah. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, what's my phone company? <laughs> I, I'm immediately suspicious of these people. Uh, but, uh, but they will only identify a spectrum when pushed to identify the actual company name. Uh, I think that any call from any cable company offering you discounts is as suspicious as a stranger with a golden fiddle.
1: I <laughs> <Nice>. will agree. <laughs> Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, it's
1: all a numbers game, right? It is. I mean, they're just spraying and praying. That's
2: exactly what it is. In fact, they you know they may not even be. uh, My thinking is some of these are scams, Mm -hmm. right? Where there is no, it doesn't matter who you're with. They're they're just going to scam you.
1: Yeah. But
2: it could also be the you know essentially what what Michael is saying. These are just spam calls right, to try to get you to switch uh, <laughs> providers. And you may not even be able to switch to the provider, but you know, the calls are cheap. yeah, Essentially free, really. Do you remember
1: the early days of, of high speed internet when, when high speed internet was hard to get and it was a fancy thing and you couldn't get it everywhere?
2: Yes. You remember that? <laughs> I do. And I remember having it and loving it and being like what I thought was the coolest guy on the block, but yeah. nobody
1: else cared. So I had an office uh, in a place that for some reason would show up on some somebody's map, you know, so, some service provider's map is being able to get high-speed internet. But we couldn't. Right. We actually couldn't. When they came out and tried to run it, it just didn't work, you know. But I would get a call at least once a week from somebody promising me the world that, you know, good news, we can install high-speed <laughs> internet. And I'd say, no, no, you can't. And they'd say, no, look, right here on this map I have in front. And I'd say, yes, I know. But you can't. You can't. And so I just got to be, like, after a while, I got tired of them. And I said, have at it. Right. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> if you can do it, I'm, I'm behind it. Right. <laughs> Go ahead. Give it a shot. Give, you know, proceed. Right. And Waste their uh, time
2: instead of yours. Right. <laughs> proceed and let me know when you're done. Call yeah. me back.
1: And like a day later, they'd call. No, well, it turns out we couldn't actually. If they called back at all, you know, they, oh, right. couldn't get it done. Sorry. I know.
2: I know. I know. Anyway. I told I tried to tell you that yesterday, but you just
1: <laughs> right, wouldn't listen. You right, insisted that you right. could do it. You you were so excited to make the sale, that big <laughs> sale. This is the one. This is the big one. So, uh, we got some more follow up here from one of our listeners who is uh, a regular correspondent uh, and is a former U.S. marshal. Mm. Uh, he wrote in to say that the Dutch have been running a reportedly effective ad campaign using a well-known Dutch actor director for about a decade. It's summed up as, hang up, click away, phone your bank. Mm, I like that. That's that's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, he says, as far as a better term than social engineering, just simply try scam. I, I'm, I'm down. Work, <laughs> this works quite well for me. People <laughs> always understand what a scam is. Nobody doesn't. That's a good point. That is, uh, yeah, it's simple as best
2: sometimes. Yeah, scam. One, one syllable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we had another person uh, write in. This was uh, someone who goes by uh, at on, on a Mastodon. Uh, and they wrote in to say, your Valamail guest on Hacking Humans episode 268 uh, stated that the Center for Internet Security, which runs all the ISACs, uh, and this listener wanted to point out that... Um, it was worth pointing out that the ISACs aren't all under one umbrella. Yeah,
2: they're all ind- independent organizations run by industry groups.
1: Yeah, so right. he said there's a National Council of ISACs. Yep. But there's also an ISOA or a standards organization, ISO. <sighs> uh, yeah, I know it's uh, right. But neither are organizations. <laughs> right, um, but they don't necessarily uh, res- correspond to critical infrastructure sectors. So. This listener just thought it was important to point out and clarify that point. Yes. That, uh, the ISACs are not all under one umbrella. They are not. So, uh, yep. that's good information. Uh, finally, uh, another listener uh, who goes by the online handle Zentalon, hmm. which I kind of like. Sounds like a space bad guy or Zoltan. Something. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It says, your latest hacking humans discussion about corporate links and identifying scammer links. I understand DNS quite well, and it doesn't matter. So many companies use bulk mailers and marketers to send emails, who put links in the emails with generated tracking addresses or the address of a subcontractor. I've seen this with tech support, uh, Zendesk.com, for example. Do I know that company contracted with
2: Zendesk or someone else? Right. Yeah. Who that's, knows? that's a good point. Yeah, uh, because Zendesk is a is a service provider, software as a service provider, for a lot of companies. Yeah. Right. So, or so you could go in and create a fake email here and lend yourself some credibility. Right. Credibility.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Think like MailChimp, you know, yeah. there's just all these that will do they'll they'll, <laughs> they'll do your spamming for you. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're on all the whitelists too, by the way.
1: Right, exactly. Well, because a lot of time you sign up for a newsletter that you legitimately want to get. Right. It could come from one of these providers where the the next account is sending out stuff that you don't want. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's complicated, but uh Zantlan makes a good point. So Thank you all for writing in. Of course, we love to hear from you. Uh, If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. I'm going to kick things off with some stories here, Joe. Okay. And uh, my story comes from the folks over at Hackread. Uh, This is uh, written by Awais Sultan. uh, And it's an article titled, How Human Elements Impact Email Security. Uh, and this is right up our alley. This is digging into some of the, the human factors here of email security. Um, this article points out that over 870 million breached records occurred in October, uh, <laughs> highlighting the rising cyber threat and associated costs for companies, uh, but also that human errors account for about 82% of breaches hmm. uh, with things like phishing and social engineering. Um, and, and they highlight uh, this term, action bias exploitation, that's which a, we've talked about. That's a great term. I don't know that we've used that ever
2: used that term, but right. we're gonna now. Yeah, Actions, action bias exploitation. Let me guess what this means. <laughs> okay, they're exploiting the fact that someone would rather do something than not do something. Is that a good guess?
1: I think it's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, they they describe it as. Uh, hackers exploiting psychological tendencies like action bias where individuals react hastily to perceived threats leading to unintentional sharing of sensitive mm. data.
2: So, yep. yeah. like it, It's still down at the very bottom layer, literally at the very bottom of your brain, right. firing off the amygdala <laughs> right. in the flight or uh, fight flight response. Yeah. That's, that's where you're dealing. Uh, that's where you are with this. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I would even call this a bias. I, this is uh, because people don't, there's no way to remove this. It's not something that some people have and other people don't. It's universal.
1: Yeah. No, I think it, perhaps it means that it is everyone's natural bias towards action yeah. when presented with certain types of things. Yeah, but generally, I, gotta, I
2: don't know. I think of bias, biases as cognitive things, Right like uh, selection bias. Oh, I, I want to be part of this survey because this matters to me. Yeah. Right? But action bias, I would say that's not action bias. Everybody should run away when there's a bear next to them.
1: Right? Right. But there's, that's what they're saying is that we are biased to action, either fighting or flighting. Right. So we I, have I a natural bias towards not sitting there and being eaten.
2: I guess you could call the bias, but I think it's a horseshoeing <laughs> of the... Uh, I'm I'm not going to mince words about this, Dave. I'm going to go ahead and say, okay, fine. Call the bias. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll, we'll
1: leave it to the people who wrote the article. And, uh, <laughs>
2: we'll leave it to the psycholo- psychologist. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> Perhaps they left an email address, Joe. You can write them a, uh, a, <laughs> a, a, a letter about your... <laughs> and you let me know how that goes
2: yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'll waste my time doing that uh, This article points out Some
1: strategies to mitigate risks Of course, data backups You know, you, you gotta have data backups Right um, They talk about um, Email signature management uh, Basically not, you know Don't give away too much information In your email signature The p- things that people can use For social engineering Right Right? Yeah. Uh, of course, access control uh, restricting file access, you know, with limited... Uh, for, to make sure that when accounts are compromised, uh, that... Uh,
2: Somebody doesn't just walk in with the keys to the kingdom when they have one set of username and password. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The principle of least privilege is what we would call this. Right. Um, right. You know, just... You know, this, this was something that um, I used to see all the time when I was administering a system. It was a, a document management system. It was called LiveLink. Now I think it's just called OpenText. Okay. From OpenText, the company... And uh, by default, when people created these these document container folders, whatever you want to call them, they w- w- was like a pseudo file system on a website. Yeah. At this time, but uh, by default, when you created it, everyone in the organization had access to it. You had to go in and limit the access to the people you wanted to have access to. I see. So, you know, at the, at the time, I wasn't steeped in the security world as I am now. But were I to be to Doing this today, I would say we're going to set that to no permissions and you have to add mm-hmm. the organizations you want to have access to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll rely on group management to make sure people are in the proper groups. Yeah. Uh, because somebody moving from one group to another, they should lose access to the, the stuff they used to have access to that they don't need anymore. How
1: do you feel about uh, time limits on on access? Because I think a lot of times somebody needs temporary access to something.
2: Yeah, but a they lot end of times.
1: Up, they end up with it forever because no I one goes back you, and changes it.
2: I will tell you the perfect example of that. Okay. Uh, we would have CMMI audits, right? And we'd have auditors in our organization who would say, okay, we're getting ready for a CMMI audit. We need to have access to everybody's documentation. Mm-hmm. Show us your documentation. And they wouldn't do this all the time. They'd do it uh, like for two months out of every two years or something like that. Okay. Or how whatever the periodicity was, but it wasn't all the time. So they would get access to everything on that server that I was just talking about, the like system, because ah. that's where we kept all of our documentation. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm 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 for it, Dave. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, you know, I mean, I guess it depends. You know, worse—in many cases, it, people won't even notice that it's there, and if someone needs their access extended, then they can—
2: Yeah, they can just send an email or make a phone call. Right. I mean, it's not—that's the thing about uh, auto-revoking access, is that if if you don't need it, you will never notice it's gone.
1: <laughs> it's the... It's like that joke about uh, you know the the folk guys in the server room. <laughs> They're saying, "What's this thing do?" I See, I don't know. Unplug it. See who comes and complains. <laughs>
2: <Right>. <laughs> That's we used to have that button or that joke. We'd say, "Push the button and listen for the screams."
1: <laughs> right. Okay, uh, moving on. <laughs> they talk about uh, the importance of employee education. Of course, oh, big yeah, fans of that. Cool. <laughs> In fact, they call that the most effective defense strategy. Do they really? Yeah, I, yeah. I, to teach employees about the cybersecurity basics, about threat recognition and response protocols, which I think are really important as well. Right. What do you do if something goes wrong? What
2: do you do if you have clicked on the phishing link? Yeah. Right. Right. You know that that's you got to tell people that.
1: Yeah, and you got to have a culture where people don't feel like they're going to get punished right. for it. Yeah, that's absolutely. They'll correct. try to hide it and
2: no, because like, if you be if you. Dis- heavily disincentivize that. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's bad news. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, uh, looking towards
1: 2024, uh, in terms of an outlook, they emphasize that you should try to create a robust security culture through comprehensive employee training and awareness, uh, which will help enhance overall security posture and reduce human error induced. One of the things that
2: Perry Carpenter always says, Perry Carpenter, who has a show on this network, the Eighth Layer Insight Show, and is a frequent guest on our show. Yeah. uh, One of the things he says is, you have a security culture, whether you know it or not. That's right. That's right. So if you don't know you have a security culture, I can bet that your security (laughs) culture is poor. Yeah. Um, That's good. But I mean, Perry said that, and I was like, that's really good. Yeah. It's true. It's, it's and it's very true. (laughs) All right. Well, that's
1: my story this week. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Joe, what do you got for us?
2: I got two stories. One, since uh, this is more of a follow-up from the holidays, mm. uh, but there is a product out there called a vanilla gift card, uh, which is uh, a a gift card that you can only use once. It's not reloadable. Hmm. Uh, but we were talking a lot about gift card scams last, uh, you know, last month. Yeah. And in the city of San Francisco. Their, their city attorney, David Chui, or Chu I'm, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, and I'm sorry for messing that up if I did, uh, but he is suing the issuer of these cards because their products contain lax security features on them. Hmm. Lax, L-A-X, um, which I think is interesting. I don't know how far he'll go with this, how far he'll get with this, but... Mm-hmm. Um, it would be, uh, I think, it would be great if somebody could be held accountable for this. But these people have had their cards just drained, or or essentially bought gift cards for other people, and uh, the the attorney for the city of San Francisco, the city attorney, is not not having it. Hmm. Um, what, what does it, the article
1: say? What specifically he takes issue with?
2: He takes issue with the the quote lax security features on the card packaging. Oh, okay. That's what he says uh, in the article. Yeah. Yeah, according to the complaint, the gift card packaging allows for easy access to the card inside. Oh, so I see. People can get into the card, mm-hmm. take all the information off of it, put the card back on the shelf, and then let other people buy them gift cards. I see. That's how it works.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I you know, right before the holidays, I saw uh, some posting from uh, Brian Krebs, uh, Krebs on Security, and uh, he had, he was reposting some articles from a couple years ago that really outlined how the bad guys go after gift cards. Right. And, and one of the things he highlighted was how they can manipulate the packaging that they come in, do what they need to do, and then make it look like the packaging was not manipulated. So it sounds like this that's along the same lines as yeah. what you're talking about here.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, my thinking on this is that printing equipment is not all that expensive. Yeah. Uh, you could get something that essentially prints up new packaging for those gift cards that looks very similar, if not exactly the same, as the packaging that's on the shelf. Right. And you could do anything you wanted to to that card, put it in a new package, and put it back on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm. Interesting. What else you got?
2: My second story actually comes from my good close friends at the IRS, Dave. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sure. So,
1: (laughs) did you you send them a big gift basket over the holidays, Joe? We're pen pals, (laughs) me and the IRS, Dave. pen pals. (laughs) All
2: right. I understand. I understand. Sure. So uh, the IRS has a has announced that they are going to be providing penalty relief for about five million people on their 2020 and 2021 tax returns. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know exactly what the details of this uh, of this tax relief are, but they're just they're not relieving people of their taxes, just of some of the late fees. Okay, and they're saying it's because we weren't able to send out late notices or non-payment notices when people file their taxes, but didn't pay them. Oh. Uh, so, uh, I, I don't know what the benefit is going to be. You can probably go through and read this article and that's not really what I want to focus on. Okay. What I really want to focus on is there are 4.7 million individuals who are affected by this, who are impacted by this, who are going to get some kind of benefit. Mm. Uh, that's a pretty large swath of the American pe- uh, public, mm-hmm. uh, especially the tax-paying public. That's probably somewhere around one, two percent, maybe. Yeah, right. The scammers are going to go after this. They're going to exploit this because these guys are watching the news. Mm. Uh, so, first off, I'm. I'm, I'm wh- I don't. I don't want to s- say how you feel. Or I don't. It, this is not about the the refund program or the, or the forgiveness of these late fees or whatever. It's about the fact that you're going to there. You're, you're going to see email saying claim your IRS fee waiver right right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you are, if you are someone who has not paid your, or owes penalties, non-payment penalties for 2020 and 2021, that's going to hit you right in, in the money part of your brain. Right, 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 and it's going to fire off you. Hey, I heard about this on the news. Oh, here the IRS knows that I owe them money because I I have to send them send them checks regularly, or they keep sending me those annoying letters or whatever. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, and they say they're going to they're going to they say they're going to come and get me if I don't buy gift cards for them. That's a completely different scam. <laughs> uh, but you know, if you if you're in this, if you're one of these people, you know you're one of these people. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the things I, that we've said before is that if you have business with the IRS for, for a collection of taxes, you know it from the correspondence you receive and from, uh, not really from phone calls, but mainly from the correspondence you receive. Right. They don't really call you. No, they, um, they, they write you letters. They write you letters. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and they will not call you out of the blue. If, if, if the, the first communication from the IRS will never, never be a phone call. Mm-hmm. And th- the only time you'll get a phone call is when you have called and asked for them to call you back or if you have some kind of agreement with them where, they're, where you're talking with them mm-hmm. and you know somebody. Um, but this is going to come in the form of phone scams and this is going to come in the form of phishing attacks. Yeah. Um, that And and probably even scams over text messages and over, uh, over any other messaging platform. I, d- I don't know how the IRS would know that you know what, my signal account is, although they might know. <laughs> um, but, uh-huh. uh, you know, the um, look, be on the lookout for this. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, since we're now in January, it is tax scam season. So be extra vigilant. Yeah. Uh, that they're going to go after businesses, they're going to go after individuals, uh, they're going to be filing taxes, uh, fraudulent tax returns. Mm-hmm. And if that happens to you, that's going to be a pain.
1: Right. Uh, They've switched gears from the holidays that, to that's tax That's right. They've switched gears from the holidays <laughs> to the tax right. fraud. Right.
2: Uh, or not tax fraud. Tax fraud is when you lie to the IRS about how much you owe, but these are tax scams. I guess this is tax fraud. I, no. I don't know. These people would probably do time for tax fraud if they ever got caught. Could so, be. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All right. The people well, filing the returns, I mean. Yeah, good advice. Yes. Good advice. Keep an eye out. And uh, also, I don't know how the IRS is going to notify you if you are one of the people that receives this, but they said they will notify you. And it will come probably in the form of a letter. Mm-hmm. I'll bet it comes in a letter. It's got to be a letter.
1: And how often do you get good news from the IRS, right? Good news. Uh, yeah. You know, you don't you have know to- I,
2: I've opened a number of letters in the IRS and <laughs> haven't seen one that says good news. I mean, I guess uh, if
1: you get a, refund that's, yeah, a, you get a news, refund, that's a good news letter from yeah, the IRS. I've
2: got a refund in a number of years, though. <laughs>
1: All right, well, we, we, will this have, year, though. we will have links to uh, both of your stories here in the show notes. Yes. Joe, it's time to move on to our Catch of the Day.
2: Dave, our Catch of the Day also comes from Mastodon, uh, from Dodo the Dev. And it is a perfect example of a poor phishing email. <laughs> <laughs> He says, notice the spelling and the phrases not making sense and all that. Uh, why don't you go ahead and, and read this one, Dave? It's uh, down here at the bottom of the page.
1: All right. So it starts off with a big old logo at the top from Google Forms. Hmm. Mm, interesting. Yep. It says, your score has been released for balance $44,101. Dear user, we have noticed that you signed up an user account in our system approximately a year ago. However, it appears that you haven't visited your account in a while. We'd like to inform you of the importance of using the platform on the platform. In order to to provide opportunities for the rest of our users and keep up the current status of our system, we plan to block automatically inactive accounts in the next year future. Please be aware that your balance will be zeroed upon account deactivation. We welcome you to access to your account and discover the latest updates and capabilities we offer. We value your participation in our system and look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for your attention and understanding. Please click the button below to access your account. Balance,
2: $44,101. And then there's a big view button. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what this is, but it definitely is a scam. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: and I think the Google form we've we've seen stories where... Um, yeah, Google Forms are used
2: for data collection.
1: Well, but they're also... Um, if you get a message from Google Forms, it'll usually make it through the spam filter because ah. Google is whitelisted typically. Right. Right? They've
2: whitelisted their own their own services into Gmail.
1: Yeah, so you can generate this using Google Forms, have it send this out through Google Forms, and chances are it'll hit the inbox. So I think that's why it's coming through that's Google Forms. That's pretty
2: cool. Yeah. Or, well, pretty smart, I should say. <laughs> Not cool at all.
1: No. <laughs> um,
2: but, I, you know, this is pretty badly worded. Uh, The second to last sentence reminds me very much of RoboCop. Thank you for your attention and your understanding.
1: Right. (laughs) Stand aside, citizen. Right. (laughs) All right. Yeah, pretty straightforward, uh, but it's a good one. Uh, Again, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for our Catch of the Day, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. We're talking about mitigating cyber threats to your organization before your users even see them. The new Fish ER Plus from NoBefore was developed to help you supercharge your organization's email security defenses. How? You get a unique crowdsourcing advantage. More than 10 million highly trained NoBefore end users from across the globe catch and report malicious email that makes it through all the filters. No Before's Threat Lab then validates it with AI and with human researchers. Fish ER Plus blocks phishing threads other tools have missed and proactively removes them from your users' inboxes. Not quite time travel, but we think you'll agree it's a vital capability in any InfoSec professional's arsenal. Visit Nobefore.com/slash products slash fisher-plus to learn more. That's knowbefore.com slash products slash fish dash And we thank Nobefore for sponsoring our show. Joe, uh, it is our pleasure to welcome to the show Aleth Dennis. She is from Bishop Fox. Uh, And we are talking about the 23andMe breach.
0: So, uh, first of all, I describe this as a breach that has little to no fault for the vendor. And in this case, that's 23andMe, which is a little difficult for folks to understand. If it's their data that was leaked, then how are they not at fault? The reason that the data became accessible To the attackers was that those individuals with those accounts, they actually had passwords that they were reusing on various other accounts. So while their information could have been breached from another provider of a service or app or account that they had and made public through that breach, all the attackers did here was take those passwords and see if those individuals had recycled those email addresses and passwords with their 23andMe accounts.
2: So was this a simple credential stuffing attack?
0: From what we understand, yes. So the attackers were able to not only capture a large amount of account credentials through other breaches, but they were able to then systematically take those credentials and put them against the login for 23andMe's application or services. And then from there, they were able to see which of these credentials had a 23andMe account that used that same email address and password combination. So for example, if you have me at email.com and that's my email address, and I use the same email for all of my accounts that I have online, whether that is banking or streaming or a variety of other different types of accounts, and I just want one password that makes it super easy for me to type it in and remember, Then I'm going to use the same email and password on all those accounts. And since 23andMe is a little bit older as far as the internet is concerned, (laughs) then (laughs) there's a high volume of people that haven't ever updated their passwords since that was common practice. It was very common practice for all of us to have a complex or long or complicated with symbols uh, type of password that may even be like eight or 20 characters long. But we were all using the same password on all of our online accounts. And so what these attackers were counting on is that there would be at least a few folks who had accounts that had passwords that were the same as what they were able to collect from this breach data from completely different companies and completely unrelated breaches. Yeah, it's a really interesting
1: point about uh, how um, you know the twenty three andMe users uh, aren't probably logging in every day. You know, that's uh, my my experience with those sorts of platforms is there's kind of a flurry of activity when you first sign up and log on because you, you kind of get flooded with all of this information about, you know, oh who am I related to? And there's a lot of excitement, but then, then it kind of trickles in after that. And so I can see people losing interest, not closing their accounts, but just not being active participants there.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things where it was, you know, the new hotness a few years ago to get this test kit for your family to set it up for your siblings, for your parents, for yourself. And a lot of people did just that. They set their account up, they sent in their samples, they got their results, they shared their results all over the internet with friends, and then they sort of forgot about it. Um so with 23andMe and other uh DNA testing and genealogy type websites, there is exactly that sort of set it and forget it type of mentality. Whereas with, you know, streaming services and banking, we get lots of reminders to update our passwords. And when new security concerns arise, those are the first things that come to mind because we are interacting with them on a daily basis.
1: Now, it's my understanding that, that uh, something that made this breach even worse was that if the the bad guys logged in, for example, under my account... They were also able to see a good amount of information f- about folks that I was genetically related to. Is is that on the mark there?
0: Yes. So from what we understand, there were approximately 5.5 million accounts that were compromised through this brute forcing or guessing of the credentials using what was made available out there through other breaches. But from those individuals, there were about 1.4 million people who opted in to DNA relatives and also had their family tree profile information available as well as other things like even their geographical location, relationship labels that they had assigned to people as far as how they were connected, their display names, birth dates, and any other like self-reported location. So if they said, I live in this town, that would have been available to an attacker as well. Um, So people could, if they were able to access another person's account, see how they were connected to people, where those people were located, um, possibly as well as the relationship labels that had been assigned. Um, And what this does is it gives an attacker a really good understanding of how these people are connected And we could say that this gives an attacker the ability to answer a large swath of security questions, things like what is your father's middle name, for example. But it also gives attackers a way to create really compelling, convincing pretexts that they can use to elicit a very emotional response. And a lot of the times when we get scammed on the internet or we hear about online scams, we think of things like the gift card scam and this and that. But there's a whole nother layer of phone scams, especially where attackers will pose as a kidnapper. And they will actually call someone and tell them that they've kidnapped a child or a family member. And if that person is able to say, you know, this is your child's name and this is the school they go to. And any other data that they can collect by guessing the elementary school closest to this person or looking up the social media of, say, another family member who's a little bit more uh, free with what they share on their social media, this just gives added authenticity, seeming authenticity to that uh, scam. It makes the person who's receiving that phone call in the moment believe that this is accurate because they're saying all of this stuff that's true.
2: So the question I have about this is, there are seven million people that had had their accounts compromised, almost seven million. What percentage of the twenty three andMe user base is that? Is that a my guess is that it would be twenty percent.
0: I don't have the exact numbers, but I would guess it was a pretty large set of users, uh, especially that volume. I would say it's a pretty large percentage of current account holders uh, because, again, these people would have to have active accounts in order for them to be accessed, um, but I'm not familiar with exactly the number of users on the platform.
1: Now, it's interesting also that uh, after this breach occurred, both 23andMe and Ancestry have kind of upped their game when it comes to the requirements for their users and and uh, login security, Right.
0: That's correct. I know that there is two-factor authentication made available on the majority of these platforms. Um, That would take a little effort on the account holder's part to enable that and set it up. So in this case, I feel like there's going to be a large number of individuals as we discussed that they just set this up, you know, 10 or so years ago and forgot about it. Um, Those people aren't going to be as vigilant in protecting their accounts. So these features are quite new and they may or may not know how they work, how to set them up, how to use them or what the benefit is to them to set them up. Um, So I love that these companies are kind of taking the initiative to communicate the benefits and the uh, fact that these features are available now and encourage people to take action. but. We all know humans will take the path of least resistance when given the opportunity. And I don't expect that a lot of people will take action swiftly to enable these uh, security features on any of their online accounts unless they are someone who has fallen victim to some kind of attack. Mm.
2: So is there anything you think that 23andMe could have done better or do you think there's any culpability they may have in this? Uh, My initial thinking on that is no, but I'd like to hear what you... What do you think about that?
0: In my opinion, and I will stress that this is my personal opinion, I do not believe that 23andMe did anything incorrectly or is responsible in any way. I do understand that the individuals who had the most information compromised opted in to share Data between other people on the platform. So they were actively looking to connect with other people who may have been related to them or had some relationship or additional information about that individual's family tree or other people that they could be related to. And that is a little tricky because, yes, that person has access to that information because all of those other individuals that they're connected to, as well as themselves, opted into that. But again, I think that there could be more layers of security around how this data is being shared even within the platform. But at the end of the day, I don't believe that 23 Me is responsible for this particular uh, leak or breach of data because of the fact that these attackers gained access by guessing the passwords of the account holders using information that they got from a completely unrelated source.
1: Hmm. You know, I, I, immediately after this breach, uh, I was actually involved in some uh, genealogical uh, research on the platform on both 23andMe and Ancestry, and um, to the frustration of someone who was helping me with this, 23andMe had actually disabled a bunch of features. One of them being, you know that sharing feature that had caused them so much trouble, uh, they turned the spigot off on that for a while, and uh, you know understandably but it was also slowing down folks who were you know trying to uh, trying to do some family research
0: right no it's tricky because we want to be able to freely share information to advance those types of object- of objectives and i think i've seen this the most with clients who have had research based Job functions. I'm trying to redact things as I talk. So, <laughs> <laughs> sure. but I've worked with clients who have to have a lot of these communication pathways open between various researchers, various locations. They might have laboratories all over the world. And so, for them to be able to share research and to collaborate with other people who are focused on the same research. It makes it very tough to remain secure because they need these conduits to exchange data and information. And what that does is that really opens them up to being vulnerable to these types of attacks because once somebody is in anywhere, it doesn't take too much to get from one point to another unless there are very strict security controls as to who can access what, where, and when. Um, So there was a medical research facility that was in the news recently who had uh, individual accounts um, breached from their records, so patient data, and the patients were contacted by the ransomware gang and asked to pay a ransom, a small fee, to keep their specific information out of the data set that was going to supposedly be released uh, on the dark web. So they asked individuals to give them $50 or some nominal fee to keep their own record off the internet. And I thought that was quite interesting as well. Instead of going after just the medical research facility for a ransom, they decided to target the individuals who were included in the breach data themselves
1: yeah i've I've taken to calling those sort of low level uh attempts uh nuisanceware you know because, <laughs> because it's not it's not going to change anyone's life but uh you know I guess it's effective they, they do it for a reason i'm curious can you can you speak to the kind of immutable nature of this particular type of data you you cannot change your DNA
0: Yes, and I know that there was a lot of fascination in the security community as to how this data was going to be stored, how it was going to be protected. And I don't know that in this case uh, that the individuals who breached these accounts would actually have access to the DNA record um, because I don't know that the full you know DNA record is available just in the online platform. However, um, I also don't think that while we often tend to want to focus on the conspiracy theories and the sci-fi elements of DNA being leaked and, you know, having yourself cloned, for example, um, I feel like the majority of us really want to focus on protecting things like the shape of our face, our fingerprints, things that we now use to access things like our phones. And I believe that for high value targets, that might be a very high priority as far as concerns go. And if you're concerned with those types of things, then, you know, setting up a website and sending in your DNA or a website account and then sending in your DNA sample may not be the best path for you because the only Secure platform is one that can't communicate with anything outside of itself. So, we're never going to reach 100% security on any of these types of services where you have individuals who are logging into accounts and you have that interconnectivity between different SaaS applications, as well as locations and data centers, etc Everything is vulnerable uh, in some way. But as far as protecting the way that your face looks for things like facial recognition on devices or protecting your fingerprints, which, I mean, I saw the matrix too, but that didn't look like a lot of fun having your fingerprints burnt (laughs) off. (laughs) Um, I don't know that there's anything we can really do besides adding multiple different types of factors of authentication on top of those. Um, none of us are going to be able to change things like our social security numbers either. The majority of us won't be changing our primary email address anytime soon or our phone number, for example. Um, So it just comes down to adding more layers of protection around those accounts. And what I think is the best way to avoid these types of uh, social engineering, phishing or scamming schemes that lift simply the passwords or one factor is to have something else that is a device or a piece of hardware that cannot be taken away from you, uh, but can be replaced or updated. So universal second factor would rely on an actual device being you know, plugged into your computer in order to allow access. And I believe there are more online accounts that are enabling the use of things like Keys and other devices that provide that U2F protection when it comes to authentication of a user when they're accessing an account.
1: All right. Well, our thanks to Alith Dennis from Bishop Fox for joining us. Uh, We do appreciate you taking the time. We want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Before. They are experts in helping users do the right thing through new school security awareness training. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. This episode was produced by Liz Urban, mixed by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producers are Jennifer Iben and Brandon Carp. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. and share your feedback now.